So you've been here exactly 24 hours. Congratulations. <laughs> it's a great success that you're all still here. As you probably realized, um, it's a little harder than you thought it might have been. Anybody thought it was harder than it was going to be? Anybody thought if it was really this going to be this hard, you wouldn't have come? <laughs> There's a few honest hands at the back there. <laughs> anyway, we have all these wonderful expectations of retreat, spirit rock, and blissful, and peaceful, and nature, and tranquility, and love, and we're kind of crunchy knees, and aching back, and restless mind, and boredom, and doubt, and self-loathing, and who knows what was thrown in there. <laughs> so it's a roller coaster. There was one year, one person on retreat said, on this first or second day, said, you know, I'd rather be at work. <laughs> <laughs> I won't ask how many of you want to rather be at work, but as reminded somebody mentioned today, um, you know, we, we, you know, it's a roller coaster. Life is a roller coaster, and retreats are a roller coaster. Meditations, are, you know, it's, there's no, it's not linear like we like to think it is. It's really up and down. And someone was reminding me today that, um, you know, when it's when we have those moments of peace and quiet and and joy and bliss, even the mind starts thinking, oh, this is great. You know, how can I do like a, a week retreat or a month retreat, or maybe I can go to Thailand and ordain for a while and. <laughs> You know, and then the next sit, of course, is really painful, it's difficult, the back's hurting, the mind's raging, and it's like, how can I leave this retreat now? How can I get the <laughs> hell out of here? And it goes on, you know, with the ups and the downs. And so we can't control the waves, as uh, one meditation poster went, but we can learn to ride them. We can learn to ride the waves, that's what we're doing. The, the waves of life, of the ups and downs, the 10,000 joys and sorrows, are endless. And e even in one minute, in one sitting, there's just a whole range. So this practice is asking if we can be awake to all of that. Can we be, can we be present? Can we stay steady? Can we, be, can we live with an open heart through this, these turbulences, these movements of our heart and mind and body? And the good news of all of this, if you're wondering what the hell we're doing all this for, uh, the good news is there is a way out. There is a way to learn how to be with our experience, to be with the ups and downs, to be with the joy and the sorrow, to be with the turbulence of life, with a kind, open heart. That's really what this practice is about, how to meet all circumstances, all situations, with responsiveness, with awareness, with kindness. And the Buddha, when he, after his awakening, um, gave uh, his first teaching, which is really the, his pivotal and fundamental teaching that really pretty much everything else he talked about rippled out from that basic understanding of the Four Noble Truths, uh, he laid out this path. that the, on, on the path in life, we discovered that there was suffering, there was pain, that there's causes to our pain and suffering, but there's a way out, there's a cessation, there's peace, there's freedom that's possible, and there's a path leading to, the, uh, to freedom, to peace. And that's partly what I'll be talking about tonight. Thich Nhat Hanh put it this way, he said, 
Buddhism is simply a way to live well. Happiness is available. Please help yourself. So as you may have noticed already, the, the, these teachings, these practices are very pragmatic. It's really simply saying, this is, this is how life is. This is what creates suffering in the human heart and mind. This is what creates well-being, peace, ease, freedom. You have a choice. It's up to you. Hafiz, the wonderful Sufi poet, put it this way. You carry all the ingredients to turn your life into a nightmare. Do not mix them. <laughs> Which, of course, we do frequently. <laughs> you have all the genius to build a swing in your backyard for God. That sounds like a hell of a lot more fun to me. Let's start laughing and drawing blueprints, gathering our talented friends. You carry all the ingredients to turn your existence into joy. Mix them, mix them. So the choice is ours. And the practice, the practice of mindfulness, actually facilitates or gives us a greater freedom to choose, greater freedom of understanding, greater freedom of possibility to move from the places in our lives, in ourselves that we suffer, to move to more happier well-being states of mind, peaceful states of mind. A New Yorker comic put it like this. There's a teenager walking into a room with a li into the living room with her parents. And she says, all I ask is a chance to ruin my life in my own way. <laughs> so here we are in the present moment, lots of moments in every day, as you've noticed. And every moment is an opportunity to meet ourselves in life, a moment to see if there's suffering, if there's habitual contraction, if there's reactivity, or if there's a way to understand, to meet what's happening with some ease. And as Howie said last night, the quote that I often like to think about, that the Buddha said, where he says, if I didn't think this practice was possible, I wouldn't ask you to do it. If I didn't think freedom was possible, I wouldn't ask you to do it. And we have the most important asset in our spiritual um, battery of tools, the most important jewel, the most important asset is this quality of awareness, this quality of wakefulness, this quality of innate attentiveness. You all have that, the fact that you can hear my talk, the fact that you've been paying attention to sounds and breath and body and movement and and that's what we cultivate. That's the heart of the practice. So as you've noticed today, one of the first things that we counter on a retreat and in meditation is this first noble truth. The truth uh, that there is what the Buddha called dukkha. Dukkha is a Pali word uh, loosely translated as unsatisfactoriness, uh, incapable of providing lasting uh, happiness, uh, sometimes translated as suffering, um, but and I like the I like the translation unsatisfactoriness because it speaks more to our experience. That there's something inherently inherently unsatisfactory and often painful to being alive. Just having a body. Anybody noticed any suffering in the body today? <laughs> yeah, I mean the body is an amazing, beautiful, wonderful, mysterious, self-regulating organism, and if we're conscious, it also has lots of physical pain. 
and discomfort and itchiness and agitation and restlessness. So there's the greater realm of suffering, the the suffering of um, being in a body, old age, sickness, death. There's the global suffering, the suffering of the planet, of species, of environmental suffering. And then there's suffering that happens, and which is really where the teachings are more oriented towards, the suffering that happens when we're in contention with the truth, when we're in contention with reality, when we're resisting the truth of the moment, the truth of our experience, or when we're grasping after some other experience, some better place that we think happiness is going to lie. As the Buddha said, we experience suffering when we don't get what we want. Anybody didn't get what they want today? Or when we lose what we, ha- lose what we have, or we're separated from that which we love. So, and what's important is not to judge ourselves for suffering, it's not wrong, but to understand suffering, to stand under, to understand what, how it is we get into these places of pain, of suffering. Here we are in this beautiful, idyllic retreat center, that's beautiful weather, great food, great company, and we see that our mind is not necessarily just bathing in joy. Why is that? So I want to speak to some of the ways that we uh, encounter and also create our own suffering. So the first couple of things, the first thing that you um, may notice is um, uh, what the the Buddha called the hindrances to meditation. The first one of them being uh, the, the hindrance of restlessness, agitation, and worry. Anybody here being a little restless, agitated, wanted to run out of the meditation hall, wanted to run down the hill and into your car and off to anywhere but here? Of course, you have to remember that you carry yourself with you, so as the saying goes, wherever you go, there you are. So, you know, no wonder that we're restless. You know, we come from a life and a culture that's living at this insane speed complexity, busyness, rushing, doing. You know, we've become human doings, as I said last night. And so we come into this environment that's very slow and still and quiet and meditative. And there's a, there's a huge transition that has to happen of slowing down, of settling the mind, settling the body. And we get to feel the after effect, the, the, almost like the hangover of our lives, you know? of the busyness, of the rushing, of the doing, of the thinking, of the planning. You know, so we get to, it reverberates, and it can take some, some time for the mind and body and the heart to settle. So you can notice as you're going through your day when, when peace is here, when calm is here, and when restlessness and agitation happens. What causes it? Often what causes restlessness is our thinking mind, the catastrophizing mind, the planning mind, the imagining the worst-case scenario mind. How many worst-case scenarios have you imagined today about anything, from lunch to the pain in your knee to your bank balance when you get home to your relationship to did you leave the gas on when you left the house? And that expression from Mark Twain where he said something like, the worst things in my, ni- in my life never actually happened. <laughs> but we spend a lot of our meditations thinking about them. Natalie Goldberg puts it this way, stress is an ignorant state. It believes that everything is an emergency. 
nothing is that important. So restlessness is believing everything has to be done now. Sometimes we get restlessness because we're dwelling in the past. We're going over old memories, things we did, things we said, things we're feeling uncomfortable about. So the regretful, remorseful mind is also creates disturbance. That's why the teachings emphasize the practice of ethics. The more, the more we live in our lives with kindness and non-harming, the less ripples we'll have of fear and remorse and regret which disturb the mind. So restlessness is an imbalance of energy. Too much energy, too much mental energy, too much physical energy, and much of practice is about bringing the uh, mind and body into balance. So we need to bring some calming, soothing, restful uh, attention and energy to, re- to feel a relaxation on the out-breath, to feel the stillness in the room, to feel the silence, to feel the spaciousness. It's important to have a spacious, a spacious quality of attention and mind when we're restless. So we have this, the restless mind has some room to move. One of the beautiful um, supports for restlessness is nature. Nature is by its nature mostly very soothing and stilling. It's why we go there so often. You go outside and the, the trees aren't bothered about tomorrow. They're not bothered about their bank balance. They're not bothered about how they look or where they've come from. Or... So this is from Wendell Berry, the support of nature, the peace of wild things. When despair for the world grows in me and I wake in the night at the least sound, in fear of what my life and my children's lives may be, I go and lie down where the wood drake rests in his beauty on the water and the great heron feeds. I come into the peace of wild things, who do not tax their lives with forethought or grief. I come into the presence of still water, and I feel above me the day-blind stars waiting with their light. For a time I rest in the grace of the world and am free. So please use the resource of nature here. When you go outside and take in the night sky, the evening sky, feel the stillness, the calming quality of the natural world. The counter um, point to restlessness is sleepiness, dullness, fogginess, lethargy, what's called sloth and torpor. You ever seen pictures of a sloth? It kind of feels like that, heavy, limp, unmoving. Anybody felt some sleepiness today, some dullness? I saw a few nodding heads this afternoon, including my own. Again, it's the, the, we often gravitate between these two poles in our lives, between rushing, doing, producing, and then what do we do? Then we crash. And we push, 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 crash. Push, 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 crash. So we often gravitate between these two extremes in a way that's imbalanced. And so we feel the poles of those. You know, we feel the consequence again of, of in our lives, pushing, striving, doing too much, not getting enough sleep, not taking care of ourselves, not taking care of the body. So we often arrive, arrive with a deficit of rest and sleep. And retreats are very deeply nourishing and restful and um, supportive of the nervous system. And so it's natural for some of you to be foggy, to be tired, to be uh, feeling heavy. And that's okay, as long as we're not attached to being bright and clear and awake, which of course we are. 
And of course, we're teaching wakefulness. So I should be wakeful. If they're teaching about wakefulness, I should be wakeful. You know, we have to learn how to flow with the energies in our body. You know, we've talked about stimulating practices, energizing practices, having eyes open, standing, breathing, walking. Um, and that there's a place for those, and there's a place for also going with the flow. Sometimes it's fine just to let our body be tired and to, and to turn the attention to tiredness itself. Sometimes if we explore the feeling of what tiredness is, it can bring some energy. And just meeting the tiredness and practicing with tiredness. So maybe sitting with a slightly more foggy, slightly more dull, slightly more dreamy state of mind. Is that that bad? You know, I used to really hate being tired. I was really attached to being clear. And something shifted after a while, and I began to make friends with tiredness. And then it was just, oh, it's just tiredness. It's not a big deal. I'm just a little floppy and, and heavy and dull. And I can still be present. It's just a different kind of presence. And you can see how um, interest is, an, is one of the antidotes to sleepiness. When we're interested in something, it, it stimulates our attention. So we can be sitting here really tired and really dull and nodding off all morning. And we go outside and we see a hummingbird come by. And immediately we're kind of juiced up into life or we see some deers or turkeys or, or the swallows with an amazing display. And suddenly we're not tired at all. We're actually quite awake. And so it suggests something about the importance of attention and interest, of getting interested in our experience, interested in each breath, interested in each movement of the body as we walk. What, a, what an amazing thing it is to move the body an amazing biomechanical thing that we do, that we take for granted so much. So bringing in that quality of beginner's mind. And the important thing with all of these hindrances that I'll talk about tonight, and we'll talk about and talk an um, important thing about anything that happens in your practice, as we all say uh, repeatedly, it's not so much, it's not so important what's actually happening, but how you relate to it. What's the relationship to each experience? Whether it's joy or grief or sadness or boredom or restlessness or ease, peace. How are you relating to that? What's happening in the mind? How are you orienting yourself towards that? Is there one of interest, curiosity, boredom? Are you pushing it away? Are you grabbing onto it? Are you thinking it should be different, thinking it should be better? So whenever anything arises, notice how you meet it. Notice how you greet it. When the next physical pain sensations arise, like even when you're sitting listening to this talk, what's the response? Is it, oh no, not again. Oh God, I thought I was going to get distracted during this talk. That's a drag. Or is it, oh, tingling in my sacrum. Oh, that's interesting. Let me sense that. Let me feel into that. Let me see if I can be with this anew. You know, sometimes we can relate to our physical pain like an old friend, because often it is. We often carry around chronic pain, and we either have it as, have it as an enemy that we're antagonistic towards, or we can, we can come into some kind of friendly relationship. This is from Rumi. Um, this is a poem called The Guest House, and it's an invitation 
or an orientation of how to meet experience. This being human is a guest house. Each morning a new arrival, a joy, a depression, a meanness, some momentary awareness comes as an unexpected visitor. Welcome and entertain them all, even if they're a crowd of sorrows who violently sweep your house empty of its furniture. Still, treat each guest honorably. They may be clearing you out for some new delight. The dark thought, the shame, the malice. Meet them at the door laughing and invite them in. Be grateful for whoever comes because each has been sent as a guide from beyond. So how would it be to meet our experience with that attitude? Be grateful for whatever comes. It may be clearing you out for some new delight. So the next two hindrances really form uh, some of the cornerstone of our meditation practice and really is a central part of the Buddha's teaching and, it, and it's um, the second of the noble truths of how we create our suffering. The two main ways that we, we respond to an experience, we either like it, it's pleasant, and we try to grab onto it and get attached to it. Anybody getting attached to something today, holding on to some sweet joy that momentarily passed, or we, it's unpleasant, we don't like it, and we push it away. So the first aversion or resistance, anger or hatred, simply not liking, not wanting what's happening in the moment, not, not getting what we want. And then we can respond to that in two ways, either with a sort of fear-based response, which is more avoidant, like something happens like a knee pain and there's an immediate recoiling and a fear and anxiety and trying to avoid it or check out or bypass it in some way. Or there's a movement towards it with some hostility and aggression, resistance, aversion, anger, frustration, rage. So we go back and forwards with, with that response to things that we don't like. And we can see this on a macro level, the way our culture meets things that it doesn't like with you know, high border fences or foreign invasions. And we can trace those macro events to the, to the, to the events that happen in our own minds. You know, when somebody takes your zapper or is sitting in your chair, you know, boom, this whole story and rage can come up because someone's taken your zapper. You know, it's not different. So even though this is a very beautiful place to do a retreat, the mind is very adept at finding things to have aversion towards because as, you know, life is full of pleasant, unpleasant, and neutral experience, and so we will inevitably find things that we don't like. Go figure. So what might you encounter that you don't like on this retreat? Well, maybe it's, um, maybe it's physical pain. Maybe there's just discomfort in the body. Maybe it's too hot. You know, I was, just, I was um, reflecting, I gave this talk down in Yucca Valley in Southern California in the desert where it's, the weather's very unpredictable and this year it was having to be quite cold. So there's a lot of aversion to the cold. And now we're here and it's beautiful and hot and there's a lot of aversion to the heat, or the sweatiness, or there's aversion to the air conditioning because it's too cold. Or, you know, it's the mind that's never satisfied. It's the mind that's, that something's not quite right. You ever have that kind of mind? It's just, you know, <laughs> it's great, but it's just something a little, if only they just, you know, so, and that's the key, if you, if you hear that word, if only, 
you know, if only they served coffee at breakfast, you know, my morning would just be a cruise. You know, I'd be so enlightened by lunchtime, I could just go home. If only, you know, they had my favorite dessert, I'd just be much happier. So there's the aversion to the physical plane, aversion to the mental pain. Just having to sit with our minds. You know, what a crazy thing our minds can be. There's that line from Annie Lamott that said, my mind is like a dangerous neighborhood. I try not to go there too often. (laughs) So unfortunately, you have to go be there all the time. And, you know, it's the mind that tells you, oh, you know, you should sit a little longer. You should, you know, try and extend your practice or you should, you know, you know, stay up late and do practice at night. And then when you do that, and then the 10 minutes later saying, why are you doing this? You shouldn't do this. You should, you should go to bed. You should take care of yourself. You're supposed to be being compa- compassionate to yourself. This mind that we have that's so um, fickle and uh, just kind of wacky. You know, what can you say? Or the, the, the emotional realm that comes up. The, 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 sometimes when we come on retreat, it's like a clearing house for all the things that we stuffed. Anybody done any stuffing in their lives? Just hope to keep a few things down and just keep trudging on. And then you, we, we have a come on retreat, which creates a lot of space. And so things just bubble up. Moods, feelings, nursery rhymes from childhood, pop songs that you can't stand old affairs and relationships and loves and memories, remorses. So many things for the mind to have a reaction to. Even just something as simple as somebody breathing too loud next to you can make you feel homicidal. (laughs) I've been on three months retreat where I wanted to murder the person I was sitting next to. And this, by the way, is called yogi mind, when we, we tend to exaggerate something like that. When, when we're on retreat, things get exaggerated. We, things get blown a little out of proportion. So if you find yourself in rage because somebody didn't leave their shoes in a nicely stacked row outside in the cloakroom, it's, it's yogi mind. It's okay that the shoes are a little messy. So what's important is to understand that everything arises in your practice is a vehicle for mindfulness, is a vehicle for practice. There's nothing outside of it like this is wrong, this is bad, this shouldn't be happening. It's like, oh, no, here I am right now. There's presence or there's aversion or there's resistance or there's restlessness. And so the question is, how are we relating to all of this? How do we relate to the difficult in our lives? Because the, the retreat and the sitting is a microcosm for what's happening in your lives. So when we learn how to work with what's difficult here, it translates directly. Many people have been asking, well, how does this practice translate back to my, to my life? And this is your life, and this is how you relate to your life. And the more that you get to see it and understand it here, the more you'll have access to that clarity when you go back into your life. So I just want to give one story of when I was practicing in India just to talk about this uh, quality of aversion. Um, I was on a retreat in Bodh Gaya, which is where the Buddha attained awakening. <clears throat> and uh, we're in this beautiful Thai monastery. Um, and uh, it was a 20-day retreat. And there's a small village that's mushroomed since uh, tourism's grown in, in, in the Buddhist world. Buddhist tourism, what a concept. And... Um, <laughs> 
so what, this particular year, there was a travel agency outside the, the, the gates of the monastery that um, was a, had a loudspeaker on top of the, the building, and they were advertising their product, which was uh, this, this cheap bus fares to all around India. And they had this little tape loop um, that they were playing that um, went like this, something like there was a, an a attention-grabbing, hello, 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 hello. It's like, hello? <laughs> and then some words in Hindi. And then you'd hear Varanasi, Bombay, Calcutta, Delhi, Darjeeling. And then you hear the tape rewinding. <laughs> hello? 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 Bombay, Calcutta, Delhi. So this is like day two or three on this 20 day retreat. And it was quite loud. And it's a concrete. It's a concrete uh, building, just echoing everywhere. And um, so there was a little bit of aversion. I mean, can you imagine if, like, you just had this loudspeaker outside playing? So we'd pray for the Indian electricity system to um, malfunction, which it did frequently during that during that time. And so we'd be, have these hours of quiet, and it's like, oh, thank you. <laughs> And then it would come back on, hello, hello, hello. <laughs> aversion, aversion, hatred, hatred, homicide, homicidal feelings. And we weren't allowed to leave the ground, so we couldn't voice our protest. We couldn't, you know, pull the plug. We couldn't do some, you know, Buddhist sab sabotage and out of concern for all beings and dismantle the speaker. So we just had to sit with it. And, you know, so if the days go on, you you know, the wonderful thing about India is it really invites you to expand your capacity of what you think you're able to be with. <laughs> and it did. And over the days, after some time, it was oh, aversion, aversion, unpleasant, unpleasant, hearing, hearing, sound, sound. Oh, sound. It's just sound. And at some point, the mind stopped react. My mind stopped reacting, and it was just sound. And why it was such a profound teacher for me was it made me realize that. We think happiness or unhappiness lies in the object. If I get what I want, or if I get rid of what's bothering me, I'll be happy. And here the teachings were clearly demonstrating that happiness and peace wasn't about whether the object, in this case the loudspeaker, disappeared. It was really about whether I let go of the reactivity in my own mind. And so the next day, or the next day, it was actually in the second retreat, I think the loudspeaker somehow dismantled itself. Um, but there was a wedding happened, and the weddings go on for sometimes several nights, all night, uh, with music and bands. And, and because we'd had this practice of training ourselves, there wasn't that same resistance, there wasn't that same reactivity. It was just, oh, sound, music, you know, don't like it, don't want it, would rather not be here, but here it is, and I can be okay with it. That is, when the Buddha talks about the cessation of suffering, he talks about the cessation of aversion the cessation of grasping, the cessation of resisting the truth of the moment. So whether it's a loudspeaker or the pain in our knee or the person breathing next to us or because we don't like the food or the heat, it's not about getting rid of the object. It's about understanding our relationship, understanding the reactivity to it and letting go, seeing it, letting go. Achan Chah once said, it's not the sound that bothers us, but we that bother the sound.
this is from Rilke, who was talking about times of being in deep emotional anguish and how when we're in those places of emotional pain and difficulty, the movement of aversion is just to long for it to be over. Have you been in that place where you're just like, I just can't wait to be through this. Like, I just get me out of here until the end. Like, can I be just done with this now, please? Grief. He says, how dear will you be to me then, you nights of anguish? Why didn't I kneel more deeply to accept you, you inconsolable sisters, and surrendering, lose myself in your loosened hair? How we squander our hours of pain, how we gaze beyond them into a bitter endurance to see if they have an end, though they are really seasons of us, our winter-enduring foliage. So if we really uh, understand the meaning of working with pain, as, as you've probably seen from your own experience, it's profoundly transformational. It's where we do the most growth, where we're pushed up against our edge, and we have to grow to hold difficulty, sadness, loss, fear, grief. And so you'll take this, this practice you know, into your life. You'll take this ability to work with the unpleasant, the difficult, with greater capacity. This is from Nisargadatta Maharaj. The essence of pleasure is acceptance. Whatever may be the situation, if it's acceptable, it's pleasant. If it's not acceptable, it's painful. You will find an acceptance of pain, a joy which pleasure cannot yield, for the simple reason that acceptance of pain takes you much deeper than pleasure does. The personal self, by its very nature, is constantly pursuing pleasure and avoiding pain. The ending of this pattern with its desires and fears enables you to return to your real nature, the source of all happiness and peace. So that's the invitation. So next time something uh, unpleasant arises, see if you can meet it with, with, a, with a greater degree of openness, of curiosity. In particular, when, when it arises, notice the painfulness of it. Notice the painfulness of contraction when you're avoiding and withdrawing from an experience. Sometimes noticing how painful the habits that we carry around are allow us to let them go more easily. Also take refuge in the fact that no matter how painful and difficult something is, it's going to change. Everything changes. No matter how difficult and painful, it will change. I just want to make a, a short note or addition to the aversion. Is the thing that we're often most aversive to is ourselves. <clears throat> we often find ourselves the most annoying thing, the most difficult thing, the most challenging thing. And it's an important part of practice to see how sometimes harsh, cruel, critical, judgmental we are. Anybody have a critic in out there? Anybody bashing yourself with high standards? This is a cartoon called Checklist of Feeling Pathetic. It <laughs> points to a little of the, the familiar fun things we do to ourselves. Compare, choose, choose someone and compare yourself unfavorably to them. Examine your face closely in the mirror and notice all the flaws. We live embarrassing, awful moments that occurred years ago. (laughs) 
Make a mental note of all the people you regularly disappoint. <laughs> Disregard all compliments, especially from people who supposedly love you. There's a caption of someone and someone saying, hey, you look great. And they're saying, don't patronize me. <laughs> and lastly, resign yourself to believing that from now on, this is how you'll always feel. So it's important to notice when that lens of aversion is turned towards yourself, the lens of the critic, the judge is at work, and to really notice it and to, to see the power of thought, to see, and to just to, to see it, um, not give it authority. As the Buddha said, hatred never, na- hatred never ceases with hatred. Only through love does hatred cease. This is the eternal law. So can we bring a spirit of kindness to ourselves, particularly kindness when we're living with a human condition, with this ebb and flow and the joys and the sorrows of life? So the other primary force in the way we relate to experience is the the force of grasping, the force of attachment, the force of the wanting mind, the desiring mind, wanting something other than what's here. We have an experience, we meet it, but we actually want something else. Anybody been wanting, fantasizing about something else happening today? Yeah, it's pretty common. And it can can be for something as mild as a, a nicer sit or a nicer breath, or just a completely different life, you know, different body, different partner, different country, different, you know, big, small, it's the same. It's, it's wanting something other than what is. And that itself is a form of suffering. And again, we see if you hear the mind with the if only, or if only, you know, if only I had a few more cushions, if only the chairs were a little more comfortable, if only I had a single room, if only you know, I could get this experience, I could just have no thoughts for at least 10 minutes, or five minutes, okay, two minutes, <laughs> then I'd be happy. Desires, as you may have noticed, are kind of endless. The mind is full of them. The mind seeks to create happiness by planning, coming up with things to make us happy. You know, and it, there's a... There's a there's a place for that. Where the suffering comes in is when we get attached to the, 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 to the desires that arise. When we think, when we, when we believe and get caught in, this has to happen. I have to. I will only be happy when I get this person, this place, this experience, this job. And it's the attachment that causes the compulsiveness, the addictive quality of grasping. So I give you an example of this um, little humbling example of when I was on a retreat in uh, Wales um, uh, early on in my practice, and um, I was having a hard time, and I thought, if only I'd brought my chocolate, I'd be a lot happier. <laughs> if only I brought something sweet and yummy to you know distract myself, and uh, I didn't. And it was a long, it was in the middle of nowhere, like three miles from the nearest village. So um, undeterred by the distance to the village store, (laughs) I decided that um, since my roommate was sick, I thought, great, he's sick. I'll go get him some medicine, some cold remedy stuff. And then I can, you know, 
stash up and get this get my chocolate stash. So off I went, you know, all keen and felt like I was doing a good deed for the world by getting some cold remedy from my from my room buddy and get to the store and it's still open and I'm really excited and I load up on all kinds of chocolate and candy and I get so distracted by the candy and everything that I forget the cold remedy. <laughs> and it's only when I walk back to the room and I open the door and I see him still there looking sick and fluey and I go, oh no. And by that time, it, it, I was, it was a howling, stormy, cold, rainy day and it was so, anyhow. So I got to sit with my the, you know, guilt and at the end of the retreat, he ended up drawing me this picture of um, me at the store with my pockets loaded with chocolate <laughs> and asking the person behind the counter who behind them is full of cold remedies everywhere. <laughs> and I'm saying, oh, can I have one more piece of that Cadbury's? <laughs> so he took it with good spirit. So this force is very strong, the force of the wanting mind. And we keep getting tripped up. If we think of only, you know, I get this, and then I'll have that, and then I get this, you know. And of course, what's painful about it is actually it doesn't match its expectations. You know, a colleague of ours, Diana Winston, talks about she's on retreat at IMS and sister center in the East Coast, and she's happens to see the menu, she's on a long retreat, and she sees next Friday, it's pizza. So the whole week she's fantasizing about pizza. I can't wait, what kind of pizza? Is it thin? Is it deep? Is it... And Friday comes and she gets to the front of the line, she's all excited, and she sits down, she takes one mouthful, and the thought comes, oh, it's pizza. Oh yeah, it's just pizza. Like, what was the big deal? <laughs> like, yeah, it's pizza, I mean, it's cheesy, and it's kind of, you know, tasty, and but like, was it worth fantasizing a whole week of thinking about every meditation, thinking about pizza? <laughs> George Bernard Shaw says there's two disappointments in life. One is getting what we want, and the other, one is not getting what we want, and the other is getting what we want. You know, how often we fantasize something about the new car, or the new job, or the relationship, or the new bike, or whatever it is, I just, my, my particular thing is road biking, and I bought myself this really nice bike, because my other one got stolen. And everyone was telling me what a great bike it was and how fancy and all the great gear and stuff and carbon, this and that. And I don't know much about bikes, but I bought what people told me to buy. And, and I went out and I took a ride. And it's like, ah, it's a bike. <laughs> you know, it was a nice bike, but it's still just a bike. You know, how good can a bike be? Um, so, but we keep getting tripped up by thinking, oh, in some, in some experience, that's going to do it. You know, that's going to make me happy. But it doesn't last, you know. Things don't last, as you've probably noticed. Gendon Rinpoche said, happiness cannot be found through great effort and willpower, but is already present in open relaxation and letting go. It's a complete 180 to our culture that says happiness is in things, stuff, status, money, power. So we live in this culture that's gripped by you know, we're trained to consume, we're trained to believe that happiness is outside. So, again, when, it, when, we, when, we bring, when we mention these things about yourselves and practice, it's not to um, 
to add further uh, fuel for the critic. Oh, there I go again. I'm grasping. I'm such a bad meditator. I'm such a bad Buddhist. I'm never going to get anywhere. No, it's just to see. This is what the mind does. This is how it creates suffering. And also to see how conditioned we are. You know, we've grown up in a culture of consumerism. So inevitably we seek out outside of ourselves. This is my favorite ad from a magazine, from outside magazine, outdoor backpacking magazine. This young guy, he's meditating. He's all blissed out. Meditating in that way that they always meditate in magazines that (laughs) actually if you do that for longer than about three minutes, it gets really painful. Anyhow, so he's sitting with a bunch of his favorite gear. He's got his scuba and his dog and his kayak and his golf clubs and his computer and skis and mountain bike and guitar and his truck, his pickup truck. And it says, Spence has put a new twist on an old philosophy. To be one with everything, he says, you've got to have one of everything. (laughs) That's why he also has the new Ford Ranger. (laughs) So he can seek wisdom on a mountaintop, take off in hot pursuit of enlightenment, and connect with Mother Earth by looking no further than into the planet's coolest four-door compact pickup. (laughs) He says it gives him easy access to inner peace which makes him one happy soul. <laughs> so there you go. Ford compact four-door pickup is the source of happiness. So no wonder we, um, we get lost. And just one last thing about grasping is just to notice that when you're caught in it, which we are frequently, to notice how it creates a certain dissatisfaction with the present. If if we're caught in a longing for something outside of ourselves, it's usually future-oriented, and it makes the the present moment unsatisfactory. That's partly where the suffering lies. So we move from a place of feeling whole and complete to feeling lacking, to feeling separate. Then enter advertising culture. (laughs) I have the remedy for that lack. The Buddha said, whoever in the world overcomes craving so hard to transcend will find that suffering falls away like drops of water falling from a flower. So again, as we sit and we get to see the movement of mind, we see all the desires come and go. We can see uh, what's, what's very powerful about sitting with desire is we can see how it arises, stays for a while, and passes away. How we can actually watch a movement pass into cessation, into the third noble truth. And we see that we don't have to act out on every desire, on every aversion, to find peace. That actually peace is available in the steadiness of being with that, in seeing how it all passes into cessation. That our nature is is by nature uh, satisfied. So we don't have to push away anything. We don't have to reject anything. We just have to look at the way that our grasping, our wanting, kind of um, takes over the object, whether it's a relationship or an experience. We're not getting rid of the thing itself. We're getting rid of our attachment to it. It's a very important distinction. As Tilopa, famous uh, Indian master, said to his 
disciple Naropa. It's not the outer objects that bind us, but our attachment to them, our inner attachment to them. So we don't have to renounce the world or reject the world. We just have to understand our relationship to it and to see where the grasping causes suffering. So the last hindrance that I want to talk about is the hindrance of doubt, or skeptical doubt, the doubting mind. It's the mind that you've probably heard a lot today of, what am I doing here? Why did I come to this retreat? What was I thinking? Why didn't I go backpacking or to the spa? Or looks like a spa. Doesn't feel like a spa. And who do I think I am meditating? Like, who do I think, you know, these teachers are? What do they know? And what about my friend who told me to come? What does he know? Like, what's up with that? Wait till I get home. <laughs> And it's the mind that doubts our capacity. So we sit down, we're all excited, we get the instructions, okay, right this time, breath, here it comes. In, out, in, out. Oh, I wonder what's for dinner. Oh, Oh, you can't do this. You're hopeless. You can't follow more than two breaths. This is pathetic. You've never been good much at anything at all, actually. I don't know why you even bother coming here. And on and on it goes. It's that self-deprecating, self-doubting, undermining of our confidence. And it's really important to notice this quality because doubt is um, it's subtle and it usually grows slowly and it often disguises itself as the voice of reason and wisdom. I know what's best for you. It often comes as, a, as a, like a Dharma coach voice. I'm not sure if this practice is right for you. You know, I think that Zen stuff is really where it's at. Those black robes and all that bowing and, you know, the form. And maybe the Tibetans, you know, they have a really interesting style of practice. I think that's what you should be doing. This this, this spirit rock thing is not what you need to be doing. So it comes as, as, as if it has your best interest. And... If we don't recognize it, it saps, uh, both saps our confidence, but also disengages us from what we're doing. So instead of engaging with the practice, we start evaluating, we start doubting, we start stepping back. And then it becomes self-fulfilling because we start disengaging and stop, you know, maybe stop coming to things or doing them half-heartedly. And then we, you know, the practice doesn't work. So... Mostly what we need to do with all these hindrances, but particularly with doubt, is simply to see it, to name it. Oh, doubt. This is the doubting mind. This is a doubting thought. This is a self-doubting thought. If I follow this, if I believe this, if I pick it up, it's going to end in me undermining my confidence to be here, to do the practice. So mostly what we need to do um, is just do the practice. To do the form come to the sits, come to the walks, to just give yourself wholeheartedly. Manindraji, uh, one of the teachers of, uh, many of the teachers in this tradition, when he was asked about doubt, um, he said, your job is simply to sit and walk. Just sit and walk. Let the Dharma take care of the rest. So that's really our, our job here, that's our, our work, is to simply show up, to sit, to walk, to pay attention, and things will take care of themselves. 
So, you know, I mentioned on the first night the need for patience. And as you've probably seen, you, it's important to have a lot of patience with yourselves, with your body, with your mind, with your practice. You know, we say this practice is very simple but not easy. And many people have said in the groups today, this is hard. Like, this is hard. How many people found this practice hard today? Yeah, most of you. Yeah, it's hard. It's challenging. We're facing ourselves nakedly in the mirror without distraction. We don't do that in our lives. We don't do that in our culture. So don't underestimate the, the, the courage it takes to do this practice. It's a warrior practice. It's, it's, it's a training of a spiritual warrior to learn how to be with oneself, to meet oneself as we are, as life is, without sugarcoating it, without distracting ourselves. But there's tremendous value and richness and learning that comes from that. And we often can't see it in the middle of the retreat. You often see it as, as, as the retreat comes to an end and you move back into your lives. And the reason I mention patience is that whatever we say up here and whatever I've said tonight, you'll probably forget all of it. And that's okay. Because practice is a, a journey of getting caught, seeing it, releasing, getting caught, getting distracted, coming back, seeing, releasing, getting caught, getting distracted. That's the journey. We're opening, and then we get caught in, in grasping, aversion. We see it, we see the pain, we release. Ah, yeah, I can just be with this. And then 10 seconds later, boom, we're caught again. And that's the movement of the practice. And over time, the contractions, the forgetfulness, the distraction, the spacing out becomes less. We become more present, more established, more stabilized. We begin to rest more in this innate quality of wakefulness, this quality of presence that becomes the ground of our being, that is the ground of our being, but we learn to abide there. So we see all the things that come and go in the field of our awareness, but we're not so caught, we're not so pulled around, tossed around. We find a steadiness, we find an equanimity, we find a peace. You know, these Buddha statues, um, they all have a quality of peacefulness, of equanimity, that comes from learning how to stay steady in the face of the comings and goings and the ups and downs, the 10,000 joys and sorrows of life. So that's what we're doing here, learning how to rest in this spacious, heart of awareness that really is who we are, learning to see the clouds, the storms that come by, the forces of grasping, aversion, restlessness, sleepiness, doubt, seeing, seeing that they're visitors, they're not ultimately who we are. So let's just sit for a moment. Sit at ease.
So may our practice here together be for the welfare and the relief of suffering of all life. This talk was given by Mark Coleman at Spirit Rock Meditation Center on June 7, 2007. It is an offer. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.